This morning's scripture reading is from Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 7 and 11 through 15. This is what the Lord says to Israel Seek me and live. Do not seek the fell. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Bathsheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, for he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them. And Bethel have no one to quench it. And those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the good. If you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on the grain, therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink the wine. For I know how many are off our offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in each times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you see, say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Thank you, Rick. You join me in prayer. Oh Lord, would you open the door to our hearts so that we might receive you within our hearts this morning? We ask this very simply through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, We're continuing this morning the second in a four-part sermon series on the Old Testament book, Amos. And we've been asking and challenging one another to read through the book of Amos. It's short. It's only nine chapters once a week. It takes maybe 20, 20 minutes to read, 30 if you're a slow reader like me. And many of you have commented, you know, Chris, I I read like you asked me to do, and man, what a downer. What a downer. Why is God so harsh? Why is God so cruel? Why does he sound so cruel to the Israelites? The big idea of Amos is this, that God's judgment, and he expresses judgment on the Israelites, God's judgment on the Israelites is, in fact, a severe mercy. Sometimes the severest judgment is also the tenderest mercy. 
And we started exploring that. That's kind of our organizing idea. And we really dug into that last week. That sometimes the only way to get our attention is by shouting. Sometimes the only way to get somebody's attention, if they're not paying attention or if they're distracted or if they're wandering or if they have their back turned to you and they're not expecting it, the only way to get their attention is with a sharp word. It's severe, yes. But you have to ask, is it cruel? In fact, I would offer this, that the fact that God is willing to be so sharp to his people is proof of his mercy. Think about it this way. If God didn't really care deeply about us, he wouldn't, if he didn't want us to return to him, he would let us stray. He would let us wander off the cliff. I don't know if any of you have read the book, the novel, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Um, there are two main characters, Peter and uh, Howard Rourke. And Peter Keating, they're, they're both architects, and Howard Rourke is, the nicest way to describe him is just a jerk. Uh, and, and he's very just self-absorbed and selfish. And in fact, it's Ayn Rand's attempt to kind of lay out this philosophy that she calls individualism. So at one point, Peter confronts Howard, this very selfish individual. I'm paraphrasing, but he says this. He says, Howard, why do you hate me? And Howard responds and says, I, I don't hate you. And Peter says, that's exactly the problem. If you at least hated me, you would do me the dignity of recognizing that I exist. But you don't show me that you hate me, you just ignore me. And by ignoring me, it's worse than hating me. See, the most evil, wicked thing you can do to somebody is not to be cruel or mean to them, it's to ignore them. And the fact that God chooses not to ignore us, and he can't affirm us, or encourage us to continue to stray, the only reasonable response he has is to pull us back. And just like a parent would be considered loving if they suddenly and abruptly yank their kid from running into traffic, even though it startles and hurts the kid, God is abruptly yanking or trying to yank the Israelites back. It's not cruel. In fact, the harshness is itself merciful. That's our premise. Cruelty would be God letting them go. Cruelty, true cruelty, true wickedness would be God letting us go on our own. That's our premise. So Amos sounds mean, yes, the words are harsh, but at a meta level, when you zoom out from the trees and start looking at the forest, you realize the whole book, the fact that the book exists is an act of mercy. That God confronts our sin and our shortcomings and calls us to himself. He says, don't, don't run after those things that will kill you. Run after me and find life. Don't run after those things that will kill you. Run after me and find life. This morning, we're going to look very specifically at one of those things that will kill us, that God confronts very directly in Amos. It's in Amos chapter 5. It's the question of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is an odd and very subtle sin. And yet it's sinister, maybe because it's so subtle. This morning, we're going to look at what hypocrisy is. We're going to define it a little bit. We're going to ask, how can we diagnose it? And then how can we overcome it? What is it? How do we diagnose it? And how do we get beyond it? Now, in Amos 5, God singles out this one sin 
hypocrisy. Let's just define hypocrisy. Hypocrite, hypocrite is a Greek word. It means actor. So an actor on a, in a play, the Greek word for an actor in, a, actor in a play is a hypocrite. Well, what is an actor or what is a hypocrite? It's just somebody who pretends to be something they're not. In Greek, it's especially poignant because Greek actors in Greek theater always wore masks. They always wore these, these physical masks that changed, that hid their appearance. And so the, the similarities will be pretty obvious there. And we see Israel's hypocrisy in a number of ways, but especially in three towns that Amos mentions that if you've been reading through, you probably skipped right over. I know I skipped right over them until a couple of commentaries slowed me down and helped me to see what's going on. Those three th- towns are Bethel. Rick pronounced it properly. He said Bethel. That's how Hebrew would have pronounced it, uh, but I'm not Hebrew. So I'm going to call it Bethel, Beersheba, and Gilgal. Quick overview of what they are. Bethel. As Hebrew, it means, or Bethel, house of God. It's one of the most prominent sites in the Hebrew Old Testament and in Jewish history. Two of the biggest ones, if you remember the story of Jacob's ladder, remember Jacob has a dream and there are angels coming up and down, that happens at Bethel. And the significance of that ladder, by the way, is not that it's a ladder for Jacob to climb up to God. It's a ladder that God uses to descend to his people. Secondly, Jacob uh, meets God again at Bethel some years later. And it's at Bethel that God says, I'm going to change your name. No longer will your name be Jacob. It will be, anybody know? Israel. Israel. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Israelites, God's people, trace every single one of them, traces their lineage, lineage to Jacob, who becomes named Israel. Bethel is the birthplace of Israel. I don't know if you've ever been to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, a beautiful old building. It's where both our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution were debated and adopted. Just like Independence Hall in Philadelphia can rightly be considered the birthplace of America, Bethel is the birthplace of Israel. It's a big deal to go to Bethel. Beersheba, another town in the ancient Near East, it was a town or not so much a town, but a region where each of the big three ancestors of the Israelites, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, met and encountered God. And to each of them, God says very specifically and very consistently, I will be with you. Lastly, Gilgal. It's a site of major events, several major events in Israel's history. Two of the big ones, after their 40 years wandering into the desert, in the desert, the Israelites enter the promised land through Gilgal. So it represents freedom and home and rest. And then later on, Saul, the very first king of Israel, was confirmed at Gilgal. These are significant places in Israel's history. And devout Jews, we know, often made pilgrimages to these devout historical sites to offer sacrifices and to worship God. Now you might be asking yourself, why didn't they just offer sacrifices at home? Why couldn't they? Well, they could. It's a good question. They could, which means that if you're going somewhere, if you, don't, if you could do something at home, but you make a point to go somewhere else to do it, you're showing your devotion. You're showing how committed you are. It's a display of how religious you are. You are the dedicated ones. So listen to what God says. This is verses 4 and 5. You can follow along in your Bible or in your program. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. 
Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Now, why would God ask his people not to go to these holy sites to show their dedication? We get our, part of our answer in the first line. He says, seek me and live. It is not only possible, but it's very easy to do things that look like religious devotion on the exterior, but are actually subtly self-seeking. See, it's not that God doesn't want his people to go to these places, but as we're going to see, the pilgrimage, the sacrifice, the worship had all become external, but it was incongruent with what was going on internally in their hearts. It was as though he had taken, they had taken all of these pilgrimage and the worship and they had sliced them into a very thin veneer and glued it on top of a particle board piece of furniture. It looks nice on the outside from a distance. But inside you know it's not the real thing. Seek me, God says to his people, which implies that in their journeys that they were seeking something else. They were doing the right things, They were going the right places. They were saying the right words. But in their hearts, they weren't seeking God. We can go to church. We can go to the Bible study. We can serve on that board or committee. We can volunteer at the food bank. God is asking, where is your heart? That's what we're exploring this morning. Where is your heart? What is the heart behind those things? Are they reflections of what's on the inside, or are they just a veneer? Many years later, by the way, in Matthew 7, Jesus would teach the exact same thing. Listen to this. Not everyone who says to me, this is Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's the right words, by the way, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name, didn't we drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I don't know about you. I've, anybody ever performed a miracle? Just a quick show of hands. I should, well, I haven't. I don't think. <laughs> It'd be news to me. Anybody ever driven out a demon? I don't think I've prayed for it. I don't think I have. Jesus says there, were, there will be people who have performed miracles in his name and driven out demons who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? He says, on that day I'll say, I never knew you. In essence, God is is asking, where is your heart? Not that the externals don't matter, but the reason for them matters. Do you worship only when someone else is watching or expects you to be there or will notice that you're absent? You give or sacrifice only when someone else will notice or when there's recognition on the line. Do we serve even, it can be much more subtle than that. Do we serve as a kind of a form of penance? Okay, I, I, 
I didn't have a great week, but maybe if I give a little extra or serve a little extra or I'm a little bit extra generous, then God will show me a little extra mercy. I can tip the scales. That's just using a religious ritual for self-gain. I did what I was supposed to do. Now God will be pleased with me. You see, that's really not about God at all. It's about me. It's about me. This is why, by the way, God says, we didn't have space to print this in the program, but if you have your Bible, you can skim down uh, in Amos 5 to verses 21 to 23. He's going to get even more harsh. He got this word, words of God in verse 21. I hate your religious feasts, he says. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And we have to ask, does God hate those things themselves? No. He hates those things when those gifts he gave us, those practices he gave us, become sliced into a thin veneer of righteousness. This should sober us. This should sober us. Here's one of the reasons it should sober us. Because it's really hard to be self-aware enough to even know where we stand. I, I bet, I bet that not one of those Israelites who worshipped in those areas or those towns would have told you, well, I'm just doing this to impress, you know, my mother-in-law or whatever. I'm just doing this because I want to set a good example for my kids. I just, no, like they, they probably all would have, if you'd ask, why are you doing this? Well, it's the right thing to do. I want to worship. And our motives are really hard to peel back. They probably had a sense that this was right. It's very hard to recognize hypocrisy. So how do we do it? Well, Amos suggests two ways in Amos 5. Two kind of diagnostic tools. And they're both tools to diagnose and treat the problem. One is repentance, and another is concern for the poor. We're going to use the word justice, but you'll see. I'll show you how they're basically the same thing. Repentance and concern for the poor, or justice. Repentance is a church word that I bet you've never heard outside of a church. Repentance basically means change, transformation, it's a U-turn. The Greek word for repentance literally means to change your mind. It's just a change. It's a change of mind. It's a change of attitude. It's a change of heart, of behavior. It's a holistic transformation. Maybe one of the best diagnostic questions to diagnose hypocrisy is this. Am I willing to change? Do I want to change? When I hear the word of God challenging me, do I receive it and let it penetrate and let, let it kind of question me? Or do I immediately stiff arm it and say, nope, not me, it doesn't apply to me. The irony is that, <laughs> and in many ways, the people who most need to hear this are the ones who are least likely to listen to it. But are you eager for God to change your heart? Now remember, God is writing or he's speaking through Amos to the Israelites who are his people. 
They've been his people for a thousand years just about by now, maybe more. So this is really aimed more at those of us who've been walking with God for decades, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's not so much for the baby Christians. Here God is speaking to the the Christians who've been Christians for generations, and he's asking, how willing are you still, 40 years later, to be transformed? How much do you eagerly ask God to change you, to root out your sin? Because a heart that's unwilling to be transformed, God says, is a heart that's not seeking God. Being transformed means being willing to come to grips with those uncomfortable realities. Coming to grips with our weakness, our sin, our imperfection. Being willing to admit when we're wrong. And even looking for those areas not just trying to bury our head in the sand and hoping that they're not revealed, but, but asking God along with the psalmist. I think I quoted this last week too. In Psalm 139, David says, search me, God. Like he invites God in and see if there is any unclean way within me. That's not easy. How willing are we, how eager are we for God to root out those imperfections? I've been leaning leaning a lot as I've been studying for this series on a commentary by an Irish theologian named Alec Motyer. He wrote this. He says, A new life is primary evidence for having had credible dealings with God. Where there is no change, then we're saying God makes no difference. But the evidence of having come into personal contact with the transforming God is that from then on, A person longs to have their life changed according to the dictates and principles and examples of his word. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's even right here in Amos. You hear what God is saying to those people? It's a very active language. Seek. The word seek appears in the context of God three times. He says, don't seek those other things, seek me. Seek me and live, that's verse four. Seek the Lord and live, in verse six. Seek me, don't just just wander around and see if you accidentally happen to notice me in the periphery. No, chase me, hunt me down. Seek good and not evil that you may live, that's verse 14. Now that's an interesting one. You may be thinking, wait a minute, Chris, the first two he says, seek me, seek God. And then he says, seek good. Those sound different. They are, and they kind of aren't. How do we avoid and diagnose and treat hypocrisy? One is to to repent, to change, to be willing to change, to ask God to change you. The second, that's repentance, the second evidence that we seek God is that we seek good. And he doesn't say, again, notice, he's not saying be open, be receptive to it. If, if an opportunity happens to fall in your lap, seek it out, search it out, hunt it down. Now, the word that Amos very often uses is justice. Justice. Justice and good or justice and righteousness 
are used interchangeably. In both Hebrew and Greek, by the way, the word for justice and righteousness is the same word. We use different words in English, but in Greek it's the same word, and in Hebrew it's the same word. Now let's define justice, because a lot of people mean different things by justice. In the Bible, justice means the rich and powerful sacrifice so that the poor and powerless can have enough. It means the haves are willing to sacrifice so the have-nots can have too. The rich and powerful don't need, this is kind of basic, but let's just cover it. The rich and powerful don't need anybody to look out for justice for them. They have the money, they hire a lawyer and know the financial planner and can make things work out for them. They already have the power. Things already work out for them. But the poor and powerless, both in Israel and today, don't have the money or the expertise or the family expectations or the background or the education or whatever to make things fall their way. Not even to make sure they have enough very often. Which is why throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, God shows a special concern for four main groups of people. There are others, but there are four that you just see over and over and over. One is people who are poor. One is widows. One is orphans. And one is immigrants. People who are powerless. People who don't have structures to help them. And about them, God says to his people throughout both Old and New Testaments, seek good, seek justice, go out of your way. Look how I have blessed you, my people. Now use that blessing to seek the good of those who don't have it. Go out of your way to be generous to the poor and the powerless. Not just when a need emerges or it's not too inconvenient, but he says, it's almost as if God is saying, my people are marked by the way they look for opportunities to elevate the humble. My people look for ways to offer justice and mercy to widows or to immigrants or to people in poverty. My people don't ask, well, have I done enough yet? Is this good? Have I, have I got just enough to get the passing grade? No, my, my people ask, how can I give more? What's next? You see the difference? Bruce Waltke is probably one of the best Old Testament uh, scholars and professors over the past 50 years. He wrote this in a commentary a long time ago. He said, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament defines a righteous person as someone who intentionally disadvantages themselves in order to advantage somebody else. Someone who intentionally puts themselves at a disadvantage so that somebody else who is disadvantaged can have an extra advantage. Remember that section I read earlier? This is uh, Amos 5.21. I despise your feasts. I don't want to remember that part. You know what comes right after that? Very next verse, the most famous verse in all of Amos. Maybe you've heard it. I just, I'm going to read verse 21 and then I'm going to skip to verse 24 and listen to the connection between the two. It says, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies, but let justice roll down like a mighty water and righteousness like a torrential stream. 
See, God doesn't just want a veneer of religiosity. He wants a heart, an entire life, that seeks him and therefore that seeks justice. Because when we seek God, we are seeking good. And we have to ask ourselves one question, one last, there's a lot of questions, but I'm going to ask one last question. Why does God care so much about the poor? I mean, if you've been reading Amos, have you noticed yet how much he talks about justice for the poor and powerless and oppressed? And if you're reading with us and you haven't noticed this, as you read it, look for it. You'll be shocked by how often it occurs. Why does God care so much about the poor? Why does he care so much about widows? Why does he care so much about orphans? Why does he care so much about immigrants? It tells us something really remarkable about the tender heart of God, doesn't it? That God's heart is, almost, is inevitably drawn to help those who cannot help themselves. And that ought to be good news. Because really each of us is in a point, somehow, somewhere, where we cannot help ourselves. Especially spiritually. We forget this a lot of times, but this is the good news. God's care and concern for the powerless and for the weak is the gospel because we are weak spiritually. We've been bent out of shape, so to speak. And our initial inclination to seek God has been bent into an inclination to seek ourselves instead. We naturally seek our own advantage, not the advantage of others. If you have kids, did you have to teach your kid to say mine? I bet you worked really hard to teach it to him, didn't you? No, it just ha- it's just there. <laughs> it's just there. And it's really hard work to teach a kid to learn to share, isn't it? Each of us naturally seeks our own advantage and not the advantage of others. Each of us is spiritually impoverished. And in Jesus Christ, the God who says, seek me, has sought you. In Jesus Christ, God disadvantaged himself in order to advantage you. I imagine there are a lot of advantages of being God. I've never tried it. And he laid all of those aside, as it were, and took on the disadvantage, so to speak, of being human. The limitations, the anxieties, the fears, the uncertainties, the not knowing. You see, God disadvantaged himself in Jesus Christ. Why? In order to advantage you and me, who are spiritually impoverished, who otherwise would never seek him. So he sought us. And Jesus didn't ask, what's the minimum I have to do to get a passing grade? He didn't ask, has it enough yet? Can I be done yet? He sought good. He stopped at nothing and gave his life for you and for me. Many of you are reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. I've been reading it as well. It's a book that explores what is the heart of Christ, taking as its cue Jesus' words in Matthew 11 when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. The author, Dane Orland, writes this. He says, we love until we are betrayed. 
But Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we're forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. You see, friends, Jesus stopped at nothing. The God who says, seek me and live, actually turned the tables and said, I will seek you so that you can live. I will give everything for you so that you can live. Why does God care so much about the poor? Because when we disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others, we are reflecting and actually participating in the very same act that God has done for us. You become Christ-like to whomever you serve. You become a parable of Christ. Some scholars will go so far as to say, don't throw your rotten vegetables, you become Christ to that person. When we seek good, you see, when we seek justice for the most powerless among us, we act out God's incredible love and how God has sought our good. Friends, let's not settle for a veneer of religiosity, just doing and saying the right things with that particle board interior. No, seek God. Seek good and live. Pray with me. Lord, we know that we can, we can think and we can even want to seek you, but, but we often fall so short. Change us. Change our hearts, change our desires and our affections. We can't even want to want you without you changing our wants. Lord, help us to avoid being actors, pretending to be something we're not, but transform us from the inside out so that our whole lives might be a participation in and a reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.